When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello there, welcome to the Zonal Marking Podcast, Euro's Notebook. We're brought to you by The Athletic. Thank you so much for joining us today, for choosing to listen to us. We've played 50 games in this European Championships tournament and there is now one to go. We've been taking notes throughout and this is our penultimate episode of the tournament. I'm Ali Maxwell. Uh, with me is Michael Cox. Michael, back-to-back Wembley nights for you. How are you feeling? How have you enjoyed them? Yeah, I enjoyed them both in very different ways. I think Spain-Italy was uh, what we like on this podcast. A really interesting tactical battle. Thought two different styles and I thought a slightly undeserving winner at the end of the day in Italy. And then obviously England uh, was a bit more of a partisan night out, uh, <laughs> personally speaking. I uh, didn't think that was a great game, if I'm being honest. Not that interesting tactic. But uh, obviously, on a personal level, very pleased with the result. Tom, all well with you. We had a great time at that game uh, all together on Tuesday night. You're quite laid back on this podcast. You're quite laid back on online, on social media. You're an absolute madman in person. Um, which uh, which I enjoyed experiencing. Um, how how are you doing, mate? All good? Yeah, all good, all good. Still definitely on a bit of a, a come down following last night, but um, yeah, very very good, very happy. Your pints in the air kind of guy? Um, no, actually, I was working a bit, so I watched it at home. But where I'm living, just everyone poured out of their flats afterwards, and there was a bit of a street party and singing and dancing. So that was that was really nice uh, and happened carried on to the wee hours so um yeah like you guys a little bit worse for wear but uh, all good good stuff well we'll keep our voices low and let's crack open the notebook uh, we're going to talk about the semi-finals that took place over the last 48 hours and then we will preview as best we can Italy against England which will be the final on Sunday night uh, Spain against Italy was the first game that's where we'll start it, it was one all after 90 minutes it was one all after 120 minutes and Italy won 4-2 on penalties, uh, Michael, we previewed this one just a few days ago, still fresh in my memory, uh, 4-3-3 versus 4-3-3. We talked about both sides enjoying possession of the football and perhaps viewers would need to be patient. We thought it might feel a bit slow, this one, but we actually got a classic semi-final of a major tournament I think uh, what, what was your sort of main takeaways the story of this game for you yeah I agree I thought this was brilliant for about 80 minutes I thought one all it kind of died an extra time as as often it is was was quite flat but for me it was all about the difference in forwards I mean we talk so much about how Italy a little bit more like Spain these days with their creative midfield and it was almost like the question is well what do you want from your centre forward ahead of a creative midfield do you want to be like Italy and have a player running in behind and getting on the through balls or do you want a player like Spain using Danny Olmo who's always coming short and helping to overload the midfield and I thought Olmo was exceptional I thought he was the man of the match had a much better game than Immobile and I thought that just put Spain in, in charge of the game really the question with Spain as it has been throughout this tournament was would they finish their chances and in general they didn't until they brought on a, a proper centre forward but I think when you look at the balance of the game the chances that were created I don't have the stats to hand but 
I thought Spain were much the better side. Unfortunate to go 1-0 down. And I think over the course of 120 minutes really should have won the game. Yeah, looking at the numbers, um, I mean, Spain dominated possession probably as we as we expect them to do so. Had 70% of the ball again, with Italy having just 30. 16 shots to Italy's 7, and I think they, they won the XG battle as well. So I think, again, we keep coming back to Spain very much being the Brighton of this tournament. And I think that, that played out definitely in the game. But I'd agree with Michael about Olmo, obviously watching it together. We were both pointing out just his movement and receiving between the lines. He was so good under pressure, would be able to kind of spin away, um, either you know play a pass forwards or sideways. But I just thought he was a very, very good link and he just looked very, very good uh, on the night. And I think for, for Italy, though, it's the obvious things to talk about, but I think the Spinazzola for Emerson was a big drop-off and there was a few occasions where Emerson was definitely acting more as a winger than uh, the fullback that he, he probably should have been. Yeah, Emerson, never a dull moment, I think. Probably the best way of summing up his his style of play, but probably not as many quality moments that uh, Spinazzola, uh, the man that he replaced, had had in this tournament. On the decision to go with Olmo as, uh, well, to play through the middle, really, not a recognised number nine. Michael, you're something of a, a historian of these sorts of tournaments. This must be one of the biggest tactical or rather personnel decisions for a manager at this stage of a major tournament to move away from having a more recognised number nine in, in Morata or Moreno and start with neither. Why do you think Luis Enrique did that? And can we say whether it was the right decision or not? Yeah, first and foremost, I thought it was the right decision. I think Arma did really well. I thought he was the best player and was just helping Spain to control the game. And yeah, you're right. It was a big move. I mean, I think of, of kind of Yogi Love in, in Euro 2012 made a big uh, decision, I think, to switch Cruz and Ozil. Uh, in the semi-final against Italy that backfired. But yeah, it was actually reminiscent of of how Spain played against Italy twice in Euro 2012. They started the tournament against Italy and used Fabregas as a false nine. Uh, they then cycled through, I think, three proper centre-forwards in the various matches in between. And then for the final against Italy, again, re- uh, returned to, to Fabregas as the, the central forward. So it was quite familiar and quite Spanish. And yeah, for all the talk of them being similar, I thought in the end, if you'd watched that game, having not watched either country for the last five years, I think you would have known which was Spain and which was Italy. Obviously, oh, I, I'm, you know, counting for the fact they're in different shirts and that kind of thing. But you know what I mean? There were two, yeah, yeah. There were two quite different styles on show. And Italy, I thought, um, were more typically Italian than we've seen them be. At this tournament, just playing devil's advocate slightly on the on the lack of Murata. I mean, his impact when he came on was quite strong. So, how do you decide whether? Well, actually, that was because he was fresh and and maybe Chiellini was a little tired. He looked to get down the sides and in behind quite a lot, and that worked well. Obviously, combined with Olmo for the goal, who had then moved to a to a wider role. So, how do you try and work out whether Murata from the start would have been more effective, or whether it was just the right time to make those changes? Yeah, it's a tough one. It's always a, a tough call to make. And I think you can say it either way. But I, I just think in, in the early stages of games like that, everything's a lot more tighter and you do need players who can work really well in spaces like Olmo. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the the, the Italian goal obviously came from them running in behind. A lot of the Spain chances came from Olmo linking deep. And then Morata came on and did he did both elements of the game, didn't he? He came short and, and got the ball to feet, played a one-two and went in behind. So... I mean, yeah, if you've got a centre forward who can do that, do that reliably and do that consistently, then perfect. But I think uh, with Morata, I feel like it's often one or the other. I think his link play at this tournament has actually been really good, but the finishing hasn't been there. But fair play, it was, a, I thought, a brilliant goal, just a brilliant goal to watch unfold in front of us. And also a great finish as well, put the goalkeeper on the floor and from that moment you were sure he was going to score. I think the, the big thing with Morata was his, um, his work rate 
without the ball. I mean, I think some of the pressing he did was was fantastic, either forcing players to go long or kicking it into touch or even, you know, getting a tackle and getting a foot in. So I think that was that was really, really impressive and something that maybe works better when he comes in a bit later, facing some some slightly more tired legs. Um so yeah, I thought that side of his game he was probably a bit more noticeable than than Olmo's efforts to do so. And yeah, was was really important at the time of the game for Spain to kind of keep the keep the intensity up and keep pinning Italy back. We felt that Italy potentially had the edge over Spain in terms of transition play, in terms of being able to hurt um, the opposition, you know, uh, after turnovers, after winning the ball back. And of course, Michael, that's where their goal came from. Spain had had a, a spell of possession. I think a cross had come in, which Donnarumma claimed and started an attack very quickly. That's where the goal came from. Uh, aside from that, were they dangerous on that front? Or, or did you feel like Italy maybe didn't match some of their performance levels from some of the more comfort- comfortable wins in this tournament. Yeah, I'd agree with that, that latter part. I wasn't that impressed with them on the counter-attack, I must say, at the transitions. I thought it was quite predictable. It was just Immobile going in behind, and I thought the balls they played to him were often from really deep. I mean, from the centre-backs, from deep in central midfield, whereas Spain were looking to work the ball forward, obviously, through the lines. Didn't think Italy really did that. But yeah, the goal was interesting. It was almost like the, almost like the second phase of a, a ball in behind, because, you know, the, the Spain uh, defenders had to retreat so deep to deal with the first ball. And it meant that the second line couldn't get back. And then you had Chiesa in that pocket space, who provided a, a brilliant finish, quite a typical Chiesa finish. Although uh, I was uh, obviously sitting next to Tom throughout, who was uh, questioning some of his uh, so- uh, shot selection in terms of his historical performances. Yeah, I just think there were times where he'd pick up the ball, run into a bit of a, a cul-de-sac, and then the only decision he could make was would be to shoot. So, I mean, looking at, at the numbers, he's had... Uh, 14 shots this tournament for a total of one XG in total and his average XG therefore of his chances is around 0.07 which of players with 10 shots or more is ranked 28th out of 31st so only Lorenzo Insigne with him Russell Malinowski and Marcel Sabitzer have, have been more kind of speculative let's say with their shooting so I think the shooting was definitely an element but also just some of the runs he makes he'll he'll go a bit too wide or I just don't think that he times his runs too well either at times so I was I don't know I feel I'm a a bit more of a Berardi fan because he offers a bit more in terms of his passing as well but Chiesa did create a nice chance for for Berardi um, in the second half so it wasn't all bad but um, yeah just something that you see from his time at Fiorentina you see from his time at Juve obviously the finish was great but I don't think that makes him a a great player overall he has had a few iconic moments in this tournament though and your old mate Berardi sadly uh, not yet but maybe still to come we're going to touch on Italy obviously when previewing uh, the final in a bit more depth later on but just a last word on Spain as we wave goodbye to them Luis Enrique uh, Luis Enrique rather said afterwards that he felt it was a 9 out of 10 tournament for them Michael do you agree with that? Interesting I, I really had to think about this I mean they've they've got to say I mean, they've lost on penalties haven't been the best side against the side who I think Previous to that, had looked the strongest. So you can't really make too many complaints about their performance. And, you know, sometimes we look at Spain and because of what they achieved 10-ish years ago, we expect them to do similar. But you look at their squad. It's a funny one. I don't think they've got many real world-class players, particularly going forward. I think they've got some very good players. But it's a weirdly flat squad in the sense I, I think they can play their B team, their second eleven. I don't think there's that much drop-off between that and the first team. So I think in, uh, Luis Enrique's had a lot of difficult selection decisions to make. But yeah, I mean, I think they've had a good tournament. I think they've been one of the most organised sides. I think he's a very good manager. He's one of the few managers at this competition who, if a big club job came up, you can imagine him being in the frame. 
Um, and yeah, I, I wouldn't really make too many criticisms of the way he's done things. I think they lack quality in certain areas, don't they? As, as we've spoken about before, in the boxes, they need a more commanding centre-back. They need a reliable centre-forward. Um, but in terms of what Enrique's done between the boxes, in terms of the organisation on the side, I think they've been exceptional. I think the biggest thing with Enrique in Spain is just the sheer amount of noise they've had following them around the whole tournament. Obviously, to start with, you've had Sergio Ramos not being included or any Real Madrid players. Um, then him decided to only take 24 players and not 26. Uh, and then you've had kind of the COVID outbreaks and Busquets not being available. And I think England's tournament was disrupted a little bit by the Mountain Chilwell stuff, but I think that Spain's has arguably been disrupted far more and they've got to this point and done really well. Um, and they've responded at times too, obviously, two I think three extra time three bouts of extra time in the knockouts and I think against Croatia they they rebounded really well so yeah not not enough obviously to to get to the final and win it but I think very very promising giving this is a fresh start really for the Spanish national team great to hear your thoughts on what was a, a brilliant semi-final brilliant night as well it was great to be there as a as a gang so to speak being right up high Coxie I joked about you requesting uh the you know top top tier tickets so that you could get a a, a sort of tactical camera angle we were right behind the goal uh, on the opposite side of the stadium to where the penalties were scored um just above where Morata uh, finished his chance very well I loved being that high up I haven't been to many grounds apart from the Camp Nou where you can physically get that high and this is a very sort of listens to zonal marking once thing to say but it made me really appreciate line breaking passes more than I otherwise would certainly more than I do on the television when you have a, a better appreciation for the the gaps that they are threading passes through Busquets especially uh, it was a great angle for that so I really enjoyed it yeah it was good especially for Busquets I think first half it was it was excellent no you're right I think it is quite a good angle to watch football just a shame the penalties weren't down our end I think uh Alba was very much <laughs> convinced I still don't quite understand what happened there but we briefly thought that the penalties were going to be at our end, as I think Jordi Alba thought too, but he was told that wasn't happening by Chiellini. <laughs> it's nice having not been able to go to live football for so long that the childlike love for it still remains. There was a few times where Busquets played a pass and I either thought or possibly even shouted at one point, how did he even see that? Because <laughs> it looked like he hadn't even glanced up and yet, of course, that's what he does. Uh, let's talk about the game on Wednesday night. England to Denmark one after extra time, of course, this one. Michael, you weren't as sure about what Southgate would do tactically here as you had been in, in previous games. Southgate chose not to match up Denmark with the 3-4-3 and stuck with 4-2-3-1 with just Saka in for Sancho, the one change. What do you think was his thinking behind that and how did it impact the, the pattern of the game? Yeah, I was a little bit surprised by that, I must say. I thought he'd used pretty much the same approach that he went for against Germany. What was the impact? I don't think England pressed as well as they've done in previous games. I don't know whether that was deliberate. I think it felt like they wanted Denmark to play a little bit higher up the pitch so England could intercept the ball in midfield and then break in behind them. And if that was the plan, I think they did that quite well. I mean, you know, the, the advantage of this system was they had two high and wide wingers um, who could stretch the play. And I think particularly down the right, the space in behind uh, Mailer who's had a very good tournament. I mean, Tom's written about him very effectively as a, a right-footed left wing-back, but he doesn't play that position for his club. And I think it is, in certain situations, it's difficult to play on the wrong flank as a fullback. And a few times he was getting dragged up and there was space in behind. And actually, when you go back and look at the England chances, they almost all came from that space. I mean, the, the own goal came from attacking into that uh, into that zone. Two minutes before that, he did that really good sterling chance from an almost identical move. 
Um, and then eventually it was, it was after Sterling switched to that side, really, where England made inroads. And the penalty was, uh, people can decide for themselves whether it was a penalty or not, but I think it was the third or fourth time that Sterling had gone down the outside an extra time and there'd been two Denmark players converging. And for me, it was one of those games, it was, it was about pressure. You know, there were spells of pressure for both sides. None of the goals were clean, if you like. I mean, one was a penalty, oh, well, one was a penalty rebound, one was a, a set piece a free kick and one was an own goal so it was just it felt to me like just one of those slightly attritional games about getting the ball in the right zones and eventually something might happen for you rather than anything like uh, you know a real tactical game that I personally uh, enjoyed like the Spain-Italy one Yeah looking at I mean looking at the numbers England really dominated and I think that's this is one of the perfect games to actually look at the numbers and, and get a more objective view of it because we're so emotionally invested in this in this game in this fixture. But um, two point eight xG to England versus zero point two for Denmark. Uh, Twenty shots to Denmark six. So I think yeah, on the night we probably dominated. I think at times Hoybier and and Delaney really dominated Rice and Phillips, and I think Rice actually took a bit of time to get into the game. There were certain individual moments when he looked good, but I just was thinking. I thought he was a little bit overwhelmed at times, um, but managed to turn it around a bit, a bit later in the game. But I think we should give a bit of credit. I've not seen it spoken about too much, but some of the, I mean, we spoke about Italy previously and, and kind of the impact of their their set piece coaching, their set piece schemes. But I thought Denmark's were even more interesting, really, just bunching everyone together on the goal line or everyone together on the edge of the area. And then kind of having a few runners turn, rush towards the goal. And that, I think, led to to Rice fouling, uh, I'm not sure who it would have been, or maybe even Shaw fouling one of the Danish players, which led to the, the Damsgaard uh, effort for the goal. So, yeah, uh, some there were some interesting bits. But, yeah, I think that it's it's hard to watch this game in a, in a true tactical fashion, given uh, the the importance of it. I like the, the fact that that free kick was given because... The way they were jostling for that, you only ever see that at corner situation or when they're in the box for a free kick. You don't see it 25 yards out. And then that type of foul, you see that so often in the box for a corner and you never see it given. So it's almost like one of those where people say, well, if, it, if it's anywhere outside the penalty box, that'd be given. And it was. I just thought that was quite a strange situation. <laughs> it, yeah, it was bizarre, wasn't it? And uh, a hell of a strike from Damsgaard. I actually saw a brilliant thread. Uh, I wanted to share some trivia with you. I was going to save it for later, but um, someone called Jack Bernhard on Twitter, at JackBurn23. I can't claim credit for this, but uh, he, he had some really nice stats, essentially, some trivia from the tournament. One of them was that Dam- Damsgaard's strike was the first free kick scored in Euro 2020 in the 50th game of the tournament. That's obviously the latest a European Championships has registered its first free kick goal and that goal also meant he's the only player in the tournament to score two goals from outside the box uh, although he could be joined of course by Insigne, Locatelli or Immobile who have all scored one from outside the box I, I enjoyed those stats I've actually got a couple more uh, to rattle through later on This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Little tactical thing, Michael, that I noticed was early on particularly, and, and then it continued throughout, Saka and Sterling, um, England's wide forwards, they're almost purposefully not marking the wingbacks of Denmark while Denmark built up from the back. What did you make of that approach? Because as the emotional fan in the stands, sometimes it looked, it was a bit frustrating at times when the wingbacks were were such an easy out ball for them. Uh, But I suspect there was probably a a sort of smarter reason behind this from Southgate. Yeah, I guess so. I I mean, it was kind of similar to the approach against against Ukraine. Um, I think with the with the wing backs being left unmarked and yeah, I, I've got to say I was surprised by that. I mean, especially with with Myler's just been so effective going forward. But maybe the calculation they made was that if he goes forward, there's more space to break into, and if so, that that did work. But yeah, I, I mean, England. It's won. almost like yeah, it was, it was almost like there were a few occasions where. Denmark were able to move the ball towards and into England's final third just slightly easier than you'd probably expect. But but then again, as you say, that created maybe some space in transition. Uh, yeah, I agree. And obviously England won the game, but I must say I'm not sure whether we really should say it was a successful approach in terms of the formation, in terms of the pressing. I thought fairly 50-50. And I, I wonder if, if he had that game again, I wonder whether Southgate would have gone for the 3-4-3 just to make the pressing better. Because I think... I, I thought England without the ball were less impressive in this game than they have been in, in the previous two, personally. What did you make of England with the ball uh, in this shape, with Mount as the number 10? My sort of recollection from last night is that, uh, like a lot of the previous games, England mostly built their attacks down the sides, down the flanks, which, as a strategy, sometimes would make me a little uneasy, uh, that maybe not too difficult to defend against, but... England seemed very, very effective on that front, as you mentioned yourself. There were a number of opportunities for Sterling to to basically burn his fullback and uh, and, and and make good good opportunities from there. So they don't seem to get stuck down blind alleys as much as you might worry uh, your team would playing quite that much of their football down the sides. Do you think it's also a case of struggling to get Mount on the ball in central areas, a deficiency of Rice and Phillips to play those balls through the lines compared to a Busquets? What do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, I'd say a bit of all of the above, really. I, I agree on Mount. I, I think he was good in terms of pressing, but I can't remember that many times he got the ball between the lines. And I think, to be fair, when you look at this Denmark side, they've got three very solid centre-backs. They've got a midfield two that I think is close to being the best in the tournament. Maybe there aren't that many midfield partnerships, to be honest, but... Hoiberg and Delaney, I think, work really well together. And then they do have, the, I think, a bit of a weakness out wide in, in both fullback or wingback positions. So I don't know whether it was a deliberate strategy, but if it was, I think it did make sense to concentrate on, on going down the flanks. And to be fair, England did get into some good situations. Often couldn't quite uh, play the cutback or the final ball. But um, yeah, going forward, I thought England were, were pretty good. It was just without the ball, as you say. A couple, of, a couple of times, Denmark did have like five, ten minute spells of pressure and I didn't think England looked particularly comfortable kind of going after the ball basically so that's what I would be a little bit concerned about. I'm interested to know what you guys made of of Denmark's performance here you had wondered on the last pod if their front three had the quality to carve out chances for themselves really while their team would be mostly on the back foot as was the case and they did struggle in this regard I think it was just one shot inside the box in the whole game to England's 15 uh, and that one was a Damsgaard curler right on the edge of the box so uh, what did you make of Denmark's effort in the semi-final? Personally speaking I think the the key tactical thing really was the Denmark subs I, I thought that was quite 
peculiar. I mean, when um, when they made the first bunch of three, as an England fan, I was delighted to see Damsgaard going off. Didn't mind Dolberg going off either. I don't know whether either of those had picked up a knock or something, but they didn't just take them off. They they took off two forwards and brought on only one and brought on an extra midfielder and went to five three two, which I don't think they'd used previously in this tournament. So I was surprised at that. And the other issue, of, of course, is that they ended the game with only 10 men because um, they suffered an injury. I mean, how you end up in that situation in an era of six substitutes, I absolutely incredible I mean it's only four years ago I don't think anyone had ever been allowed to make a fourth substitute going into extra time now we have six and, and a team is still running out of players so I must say I thought that uh, Hillman's approach first of all gave England the initiative and then obviously they just didn't have the energy in the uh, in the second half of extra time to chase the game did they in England were how long was that spell of possession I've forgotten how long it was but it went on for about 50-60 passes which um, obviously wasn't great from a Danish perspective I imagine 2 minutes and 41 seconds 54 passes without Denmark touching the ball once uh, it was it was an amazing way to sort of um, quash the game really there was also we talked about it a couple of uh, pods ago there was one amazing example of England just fully rejecting an opportunity to attack in like I think it was Walker could have just galloped forward and, and England had a massive overload maybe five on three on the break and he genuinely just just turned it down just turned back and, and worked it and that's been England it's been quite fun to get to know this team um, they've obviously got one game to go let's touch on a couple of individuals um, lastly we'll start with Jack Grealish who suffered the quote-unquote ultimate indignity uh, of being subbed on and then being subbed off but I know Tom uh, and Michael you're both in agreement that this was the right thing for Southgate to do and feels like pretty much everything he's done has, has come off so far Tom yeah I think I mean the whole approach under Southgate is, is control really in game management and you bring Grealish off you score a goal while he's on the pitch and then you shore things up at the back end with Trippier like I don't really have any qualms with doing that especially when you have the number of subs that you do so um, I think from a uh, from a game management point of view it made sense and if you watch Grealish I mean I was focusing quite a lot on, on him off the ball because it's something that seemingly is the reason why Southgate doesn't trust him too much um, and some of his, his pressing is really poor he kind of doesn't know which passing lane to block off when he does decide to go he doesn't really spring with a lot of a lot of speed at times um, and I think Denmark were really allowed to get down the right when he's there quite easily and looking at the numbers from when he's on the pitch when Grealish was on the pitch which I think was from the, the 69th minute to the 105th 57% of Denmark's passes in the final third came down that right hand side uh, versus just 39% with him off the pitch so you know there's still a player on that side they're just nowhere near as effective defending the space than um, you know others that are in the squad uh, Tom I know you wanted to just give some big kudos to a couple of Manchester City players in this England squad uh, last night's performance from Sterling and from Kyle Walker as well really caught your eye yeah Sterling I thought was fantastic arguably the best game I've ever seen him play for England maybe ever perhaps I mean I just thought he was so good at getting England up the field maybe it's just a, a facet of the Danes at times just some of the players being very big and quite slow but he was just, just taking them on for fun and it just made him look like he had boundless limitless amounts of energy I mean he was still taking players on and you know gone gone the second half of, of um, extra time so yeah I thought that was really impressive 16 touches in the box as well which was miles ahead of, of any other England player and, and six shots too so I just thought he was really good and Kyle Walker I mean Reese James is obviously in the squad as well uh, and Trippier who are probably far better going forwards but I think we saw last night the perfect reasons as to why Walker is so important for the team shape Damsgaard was literally through on goal uh, at one point and like 
I don't think I was panicking. I, I doubt you guys were either because you know Kyle Walker's there, can put the afterburners on and could just gently shrug Damsgod off the ball. And he did that two or three times. I think he had Mailer's number from the start and there was one bit where I think they kind of jostled for the ball and he put Mailer on his ass and just carried on. And it just, I don't know, just showed that he he is very good and perhaps quite underrated in this team. I know you guys will spend much of the next 48 hours thinking about the final um, and sort of calculating your thoughts on it. So I am going to ask you about it, but understanding that, you know, we're not, we're only about 12 hours ago that the that the semi-final finished. It is England against Italy. Uh, Michael, is this the, the right final from a, you know, take off your England hat, but just from a, a football purist point of view? Are these... Uh, are these the two best teams in the tournament? I think Spain Italy maybe would have been the best the best final on what we've seen. But I, I mean, this happens so often with the draw, doesn't it? I mean, you can go through loads of World Cups and European Championships and look back and say maybe the semi-final was the actual final, and that might be the case here. I mean, what England have very obvious thing to say, but it's home advantage, and it's home advantage in a tournament where a lot of other sides have been forced to fly back and forth. I mean, even though Italy is. I think I'm right saying Italy have flown back to Florence to train between the semi-final and the final. So just little things like that have had a, a bit of an impact. And yeah, it's the obvious thing to say. It's not a tactical thing to say, but obviously those of us who do like the, the stats and stuff have had a great season of measuring home advantage. And it's a massive thing. So that has that has given England a boost. And I think but, that... But you don't... So you wouldn't rate England quite on the same level as those two, those two teams in your in your own sort of Michael Cox rating system? Um, I think if there was a triangular tournament played on a neutral venue, <laughs> I would have England as third favourites. But we don't have a triangular tournament in a neutral venue, do we, Ali? So the situation no, That's interesting. Changed. That's interesting. I mean, England, it, it's hard to separate as someone who, who follows their progress very closely and is very pleased with how things have gone. But, you know, that they've only conceded one goal so far. It was a 30-yard free kick. Um, they've only had... Well, they, they, they've controlled almost all portions of almost all of their games. And, and you know, m- maybe I haven't watched Italy and Spain with quite the same tinted glasses on. Uh, but that, you know, if, if, if I'm just surprised to hear you say that, that you kind of rate those two higher. Um, Tom, what do you think about that? Yeah, um, I guess I'm a, a little bit surprised, but mainly, I don't know, I'm, I'm obviously biased, I'm English. <laughs> but I've, I've been really impressed with with England really I think the key standout stat for me and it's I think it goes back to something that Jack Pitbrook highlighted in a, in a piece about England's analysis hub um, a couple of weeks ago I'd, I'd employ you to go and read it if you've not already on The Athletic but uh, there was a study conducted by the analysts at England they were kind of saying that clean sheets what they thought clean sheets are the key to winning at a tournament and obviously that has massively impacted the the strategy, the tactics on field. I think England's total XG conceded is 3.3, uh, and I think that's 0.4 XG less than Scotland, who have played three more games. So I just think like they've been so good defensively. Yes, they probably have a lot more to give going forwards, but the plan has always been number one, clean sheet, number two goal, and I think they've done that so well. So Spain have been able to do that. Italy, I don't think, have got quite the attacking talent in the chambers England do and it's England's final to lose on on Sunday isn't it it's going to be a a remarkable game of football I think it's a brilliant brilliant final I cannot wait for it Uh, Michael you've seen a lot of both teams in the flesh which is quite nice I think you've seen at least two of of Italy's games uh, and certainly England as well you'll have watched the games back to analyse them for your writing on the athletic site Uh, how do you compare the sides how do you expect this game to look the standard 
tactical setup question that I throw at you almost every pod. Yeah, it'll be interesting one in terms of who dominates the game. I mean, usually you can predict that, but I'm not quite sure what will happen here. I think there are two sides who in general want to play on the front foot, but in a final maybe we'll be a little bit more cautious. I think the one area where either side have a big advantage, I would say, is Eastley midfield. I just think they have more talented ball-playing midfielders, and I think if they do seek to dominate, there's a danger that England will... Not necessarily get played around because I think Phillips and Rice will protect the centre-backs quite closely, but I just think Italy might have spells where England can't really get out. But I think going forward, England probably stronger. I think they've got better individuals. I think Sterling is now increasingly positioning himself as the best player in this tournament. Um, I think Kane is a better all-round forward than than Immobile. I think the combinations are there. We saw against Denmark yesterday, particularly Saka, uh, Kane and Sterling. I think that looked very promising. So... Uh, yeah, I find it a really tough game to predict, actually. But I think tactically, it'll probably be, probably be good. I mean, there are two different styles. I think Southgate probably name an unchanged side. I don't think he'll go back to three at the back. Um, so, yeah, there's loads of little interesting things going on. And um, really looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder what formation Gareth goes with, just because Italy will play 4-3-3, which is a kind of 3-2-5 uh, with the ball and a, a 4-5-1 without it. So I just wonder whether matching up a 4-3-3 against that makes most sense. Um, although maybe you need another body there in midfield because Giorgino, Verratti, Barella are, are very good um, and probably have enough to to get around Rice and Phillips um, even when you have Mount's kind of boundless energy with his, his pressing. So yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how they line up tactically. I'd probably agree an unchanged lineup again. Saka has, has, has played really well and probably deserves that spot. I can't really fault the back line the goalkeeper Kane it's, it's hard to drop any of these really so I think again a lot of the game will depend on the timing of subs and how those are used especially if if this goes to added time and we seem that England like to wait quite uh, quite a long time for making there so I think that's uh, something that probably remains as well but yeah I probably agree, agree with Michael that it's kind of hard to to call this one at times although Again, we can be keeping back to the injury of Spinazzola, but I just think that's so key. Um, Insignia and, and Emerson from watching in the flesh just didn't have that. They weren't on the same wave, wavelength. They don't have that quite, the relationship of, of Insignia and Spinazzola. So I think that that's a chink into the, the chink taken out of the attack of, of Italy. I just think that Chiesa as well, potentially easier to defend at times. He's, he's quite one-dimensional. You know what he's going to do. And, and Mobley, I don't think his, his hold-up play really wasn't that good against Spain. Something that me and Michael kept kept talking about during the game so um yeah I don't know I think there's a lot of ways England could attack Italy but it probably isn't in midfield it's the obvious way Michael what we spoke about with regards to last night attacking build up down the sides and and trying to create overloads to get Sterling whoever plays on the other flank one-on-one with Emerson and and Di Lorenzo is that is that the obvious avenue of attack for, for England yeah, I think it is. Di Lorenzo stays deep, so I think Sterling maybe will, will have to find space on the outside rather than running in behind him. I must say, from an England perspective, I really like the prospect of Saka against Emerson because I think Emerson is is dangerous going forward. I mean, he, he hit the ball, albeit from a, a narrow angle, didn't he? He is good at, uh, in that sense. But Saka's, I mean, Saka can play wing back, he can play full back, albeit on the other side. So I would be confident that Saka will track his runs and cause him problems going in behind. So I don't think Southgate will will change his side. I can't really see a reason for it. I don't think it's worthwhile going to uh, a three at the back. And I think, I mean, how many positions really are up for question? Probably only that right wing slot where Sancho came in. But personally, I don't see the value of of Sancho playing here. Like I said, I think Saka is the perfect player for both sides of the game. So 
I think there's a very good chance we'll say two unchanged sides. Mm. Amazing the development of England's squad and the personnel that Southgate has used in general throughout the tournament. Um, but Saka, perhaps the most interesting of the lot, if he starts the semi-final and the final, that would be an incredible achievement, um, no matter what happens really in the game. Uh, which avenues of attack do you think Italy will, will take to try and, and get through this defence that, as I mentioned, has only conceded one long-range free kick so far? I think probably on set pieces, although it's tough with... I thought Maguire was fantastic against Denmark, just constantly winning his individual battles. I think that that is where they'll look to profit on, profit from even. On the break as well, I mean, down the wings, but it probably you're forced a bit inside. Um, maybe behind Shaw is, is the obvious place to go, especially if he's, if he's pushing up a lot. So, um, yeah, I, I, it, this could be another game of, of grass chess alley. I know you're a fan of that, but I just think that it could be quite <laughs> tense at times. You I'm, know. In, I'm interested to know who's going to have the majority of the ball. I know it's possible for the teams to share it somewhat equally, but Michael, before the Italy-Spain game, we talked about how both sides like to have the ball. It was the highest possession team against the third highest possession team. Uh, and then Spain had 70% to Italy's 30%. Italy had to settle for playing a more reactive game. Do you think they'll do the same against England or do you think they will look to impose themselves a little bit more? England clearly not being as addicted to possession as the Spaniards. Yeah, probably try to impose themselves a little bit more, I would expect. I think Barella will push on, probably occupy Rice quite deep. I think Phillips will probably be charged with being around Verratti. Um, so Jorginho in the deep roles may be the one I'd be concerned about. How much will Kane drop back onto him? I don't know. I would guess Italy to have the majority of possession because I think they're really strong in central midfield. I think both England's midfielders have had really good tournaments, have done their job. Don't think we've seen them... We haven't seen evidence of the fact they can outplay a really strong midfield in terms of possession. So yeah, I think, I think a bit of Italy dominance. But I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. From England's perspective, I think with the speed of Saka and Sterling on the break against that Italian defence, yeah, I would settle for that kind of situation, I think. (laughs) Who will be the heroes? That's what we'll find out on Sunday night. And we'll be breaking down the final, of course, early next week as well. That'll be the last Euros Notebook episode before we recharge a little bit ahead of the beginning of the club football season in, well, just a few weeks' time. Uh, Just finish with... A couple of extra bits of trivia, thanks to Jack Bernhard. I saw these on Twitter earlier and I thought they'd be fun to chuck at you at the end of the pod, at JackBurn23, to give him full credit on Twitter. Give him a follow. Uh, Did you know that England have managed 10 goals at the Euros and every one of them has been scored from closer than 12 yards out, which means had Harry Kane been able to score his penalty, that would have been England's longest range goal of the tournament so far. (laughs) Really like that. Um, The good news for the neutral, we know it's been an entertaining tournament. That is now settled by the stats. Uh, The three goals in England-Denmark means that this officially has the highest goal per game average of any European Championship tournament ever, apart from the one that I think only had four or five matches in it. Uh, It's currently 2.8 goals per game. So even a nil-all draw in the final would mean it would finish ahead of Euro 2000, which was uh, at 2.74. And then only one team has successfully stopped either of the two finalists from scoring in this tournament, and that was Scotland, who obviously held England nil-nil in the group stages. I don't know if there are any Scottish football fans who would make it to this point of a podcast talking mostly about (laughs) England in the European Championship semi-final, but there you go, that's for you. Uh, So one more to go. Join us early next week. Thank you guys, Michael and Tom, for for joining me uh, this morning to talk about the semi-finals. I've been loving doing these pods with you throughout, and I can't wait for our final episode where we'll break down England against Italy 
and we'll give out some awards. We'll maybe pick our zonal marking team of the tournament as well. Join us then. And thank you as ever for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Athletic.